Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Frank, I'm one of the elders here. Um, and if you're new here, there's quite a lot of new faces, so uh, you're really welcome uh, with us. Uh, you can grab a seat. <laughs> it's going to be a, be a long time on the feet otherwise, I think. I want to start by asking you guys a question. And I want you to be really honest with yourself about this one. Is your life currently marked by joy and peace? Is your life currently marked by joy and peace? That was the question that I asked myself when I sat down to read this passage. As Paul leaves us in no doubt that joy and peace should be the defining marks of a life lived out of the gospel. If we lack joy and peace as followers of Jesus, then we, it should cause us to sit up and take notice. Because biblical writers speak of peace and joy as byproducts of a gospel-saturated life for all those who have put their faith in Jesus and been filled with his Holy Spirit. A lack of joy, therefore, should not be considered a normal experience for a Christian. Now, let me say at this point that obviously there are mental health conditions which cause the sufferer to be unable to experience joy and peace. And I say this from painful personal experience. Before I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in 2014, I had a few very serious bouts of depression, which left me unable to find joy in anything. Even my favorite hobbies and my favorite meals felt strangely, strangely dull and lifeless. And looking back on those times, I'm so glad that I received medical care for my bipolar disorder, and I haven't had a depressive episode in the last three and a half years. However, I can imagine sitting in one of those chairs and listening to the beginning of this sermon and feeling guilty and ashamed that I didn't have the kind of joy and peace that Paul assumes Christ's followers will have. If you are here today and you're experiencing depression and anxiety, which are making it physically impossible for you to feel peace and joy, then firstly I would say, thank you for choosing to come today. Even if you feel awful, utterly, utterly awful today, your presence here with us is so valuable and we are here for you. Know that sometimes it takes medication, therapy, and other cognitive interventions to help lift a person out of depression and anxiety. And if you haven't already done so, and you are feeling those things, I would advise you to reach out to a medical professional. With that said, if you would say life is going generally well, but yet you lack joy and peace, then there is much to ponder here in today's message, which teaches us how to grow in joy and peace that should be evident in our lives if we follow Jesus. So let's read the text together, Philippians chapter four, verses four to nine. It says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds 
in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Why don't you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for this text. Uh, and Lord, we long to, to grow in, in joy and peace. We long, we long to be marked by joy and peace and for people to look at us and, and see that in us. Help us, Lord, to, to learn from these verses, God. And above all, Lord, draw near to us. Thank you that it says here that you are near. And that is the key to joy and peace, knowing that you are near. So thank you, Lord, that you've, even though you're such an enormous God, the, the God that flung stars into space, you're the same God that, that is so close to us by your Holy Spirit. So we praise you for that wonderful truth. And really help us now, I pray, as we dive into these words. Amen. So this passage kind of splits into two sections. You've got section one, which deals with corporate and individual Christian devotion. Then you've got section two, deals with Christian ethics, how Christians should think and behave. Bible commentator Gordon Fee points out that these two sections are closely linked in Paul's mind because for Paul, devotion and ethics are inseparable responses to grace. Fee also highlights the fact that chapter 4 verses 4 to 9 reflect a threefold expression of Jewish devotion which run through, runs through the heart of the Psalms. Rejoicing in the Lord, prayer, and thanksgiving. So let's dive into the first section together, starting in verse 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. So inexpressible joy, the kind of joy that bubbles up like a bubbling spring, should be something that we experience as Christians. Paul, the theologian of grace, is equally the theologian of joy. Christian joy, unlike fleeting worldly joy, flows from one's relationship with the Lord, and as a result, it is constant, unceasing, and unwavering. Knowing Jesus means that, you know, really, really knowing him, regularly carving out time to encounter him, and his love and grace for you, means that you will feel the depth of his brotherly affection for you. And that's the source of this joy that Paul is speaking of. Rejoicing, it's an overflow of a heart filled with the joy of the Lord. People who've ever gone on a hike with me in a beautiful place, <laughs> they begin to get irritated by me because I'm constantly calling out, whoa, look at that over there. Oh, there's a bald eagle up there. No, no, hang on, there's three bald eagles up there. Wow, that's amazing. And they get like, okay, okay, calm down, calm down. But I can't help myself. When I'm out in nature, I just can't contain my enthusiasm for the beauty of my surroundings. The joy that wild places give me simply won't stay on the inside. I have to verbalize it. Otherwise, I feel like I'm going to burst. Truly, Joy expressed is joy complete. And that's why our times of gathered worship 
should be filled with outbursts of joy as we sing lyrics such as, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Or, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. The songs we sing are one way that we release the valve on the joy we have in Christ. As we rejoice together in song, we open the spigot of the joy which is gathering in us, like water flowing into a bucket which is close to overflowing. Just as joy produces rejoicing, it also works the other way around. Rejoicing also produces joy. Like an ever-ascending helix, we feel joyful, so we rejoice. And because we rejoice, we feel joyful. And as we feel joyful, we rejoice, and so on, and so on. So Paul not only commands the Philippians to rejoice, he says to do it always. This means we shouldn't just rejoice when life is good, but also when life is horribly bad. Remember, our rejoicing is in the Lord. This means that even our, cir- even our circumstances do not, sorry, even if our circumstances do nothing to make us feel joyful, we can rejoice in him because he never changes. He is always good, all of the time. His love for us never ceases. He remains faithful. Indeed, verse 5 says the Lord is near. God is big enough and consistent enough that he can be at all times both the source of our joy and the object of our rejoicing. Think about it this way. Rejoicing in the hard times is all the more necessary for us than when we're going through a good season. Paul is a a fantastic example of this. We know from the letter to the Philippians that Paul was in a Roman jail, which would have been far more brutal and spartan than our modern-day prisons. And yet, Paul radiates joy Even amid what was undoubtedly an extremely difficult season in Paul's life, he refuses to stop rejoicing in the truth that he is a citizen of heaven, deeply treasured by God the Father through the work of his son, Jesus, made real to Paul by the indwelling of the Spirit. One of the major themes of Paul's writings is joy in suffering. And here's the thing. If we stop rejoicing in the Lord in hard times, it'll only make that difficult season harder to bear. Because now, we're in that same hard situation, but without the life support machine that is rejoicing in joy. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. No wonder so many Christians feel so weak and helpless in difficult circumstances. They aren't rejoicing, which means they lack joy, which means they don't have the strength to rejoice because they lack joy. This is the downward spiral that plagues us if we stop, even for a day or two, to rejoice in the Lord. 
So, oh Lord, will we grasp today that we need to rejoice like we need to drink, that we need joy in you like we need air to breathe? Paul then switches his focus to how a joy-filled life will be a blessing to the wider community in Philippi. It says, let your gracious, graciousness be known to everyone. So joy is unmistakable. That was true in Philippi, and it's true here in Seattle. One of the reasons why I think we lack effectiveness in evangelism is that people can detect when we're not really that excited about God. Get a skier talking about her favorite ski resort, and you'll see her eyes widen. Her whole body will become more animated. You'll sense a change in her tone of voice and the volume of her voice. It's unmistakable joy. This person loves skiing, and it is impossible to miss. How, my, how might our outward witness look different if we had the joy of the Lord in greater measure? Paul uses the word graciousness here, and the link to joy is easy to spot. Grace is what makes the Christian life different from every other world religion. Other religions say that the way to God or the way to heaven or the way to enlightenment is through your own effort, and salvation is won through a hard-fought struggle. Not so with Christianity, which says that any attempt to earn our salvation is utterly futile. Without Christ, we are so desperately stuck in the quicksand of sin that the more we try and fight our way out, the deeper down we go. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need to be saved. We need a strong hand to pull us up out of the quicksand and onto solid ground. Praise God then. That in his great love, he sent his one and only son to take the rightful punishment we deserve upon himself so that we can be free. The heart of the good news of the Christian faith is grace, which means getting what you don't deserve. We have all rebelled against God, and as such, we all deserve to be cut off from him, banished from his presence. But yet God reached out to us. He took the initiative. He made a way for us to be brought back into his presence whilst also upholding his justice as Jesus was cut off from the Father on the cross. Then he sealed our joy by raising three days later to take, to take his place at the right hand of God. Friends, God has been so extremely and abundantly kind towards us. We enjoy a fellowship with God that we could never earn for ourselves. We know what it is to be on the receiving end of that grace. And that is why Paul expects that we will extend something of that grace to those around us. People should feel that grace as they get to know us. Maybe a colleague who is trying to subtly undermine you and take the credit for your work will, will, receive, will receive from you kindness and forgiveness. Perhaps a difficult neighbor who seems to be intent on making your life miserable 
gets nothing but charity and generosity in return. Maybe your friend's child spills a glass of water all over your laptop and is only met with gentleness and patience. As we've covered in previous weeks, the Philippian church were were experiencing some degree of persecution from the people of Philippi. And Paul's assumption is that as these people act maliciously towards the church, all they will receive in return is grace. Next, we come to the last command in the first half of today's passage. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. So just as joy should characterize the Christian life, so too should peace. As we dive deeper into this verse, I first want to draw your attention again to those words, the Lord is near, in verse 5b, for it sets up verse 6. I wonder if you can think of a person whose presence with you fills you with confidence. I recently made a new friend, a guy called Brent, through the local canyoning community. And he has decades of experience in whitewater activities, first as a rafting guide and then as a canyoning guide. And his day job is teaching wilderness first aid courses and teaching rope skills to mountain rescue teams. So I recently went on this canyoning trip down the Wallace River, which is up near Goldbar. And the most technical and dangerous part of that day was rappelling down the 270-foot high Wallace Falls. And usually this kind of rappel would make me fearful. But because I knew that I was in the presence of someone with all the right training and experience, and who was an expert at rigging the ropes, setting the anchors, I felt strangely calm as I set off down the waterfall, Brent giving me the thumbs up as I disappeared out of view over the edge. Friends, we all know that life can be overwhelming and scary. We've got bills, rent, mortgages to pay on time. We've got jobs we could lose. We've got families we could lose. And we've got fragile bodies that at any minute could fail us. Facing the chaos of life, all too aware of the fragility of life without God is downright terrifying. But praise God that we not only have God in our lives, but that he is near to us. Just as my friend Brent's presence in Wallace Canyon alleviated my fear, how much more should the nearness of Almighty God quieten our fears? For he is not only infinitely powerful, not only perfectly good, but he's also unwaveringly faithful. He was near to us yesterday, he is near to us today, and he will be near to us forevermore. Out of this acknowledgement that God is close to those who trust in him comes verse 6, which begins, don't worry about anything. Now, upon first glance, this command seems utterly impossible to follow, right? Even the most optimistic and faithful people still occasionally worry, right? I know I do. 
Is Paul really saying here that it's possible to go through life without ever worrying or having any anxious thoughts? Well, I don't think Paul is expecting us to never worry again, but I do think he is laying down for us a paradigm or a pathway out of worry and into peace. So consider with me the rest of verse six and verse seven. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So here's the pathway out of worry and into peace. Number one, we face a situation that causes us to worry. Step two, we bring it to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving. And then number three, God gives us the peace of his son, Jesus. Let's flesh out each of these steps on the pathway to peace. So when we feel ourselves begin to worry about something, we must check ourselves and notice how we are feeling. Ask, what is it that's making me feel this way and why? What am I afraid will happen? What am I at risk of losing if this situation plays out badly? Second step, bring God into the situation. People who do not know God can only do stage one. They can only reflect on the, situ on the situation they're in and how they're feeling. But for those who do know God, we can invite God into the situation and how we are feeling about it. God cares about us so deeply, so deeply that we can't even imagine. He is the perfect father who is infinitely more invested in our good than we realize. He delights to draw close to us in our times of worry. He delights to make himself available to us. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Paul urges his readers, bring everything that is bothering you to the heavenly father, to your heavenly father in prayer. Tell him how the situation is making you feel. Tell him how you would like the situation to be resolved and then leave it all in his hands. Notice here the word thanksgiving. Having a posture of thankfulness is crucial if we are to be people who are defined by peace and not worry. A thankful person acknowledges that everything they have is a gracious gift from God that they have not earned and so live in a constant state of gratitude rather than entitlement. A thankful person can endure a hard season of life because they still count so many other blessings in their life, even amidst their present trials. And step three, unlike the first two steps, which come from us, the third step comes from God as he gives his peace to those who bring their worries to him. This is a glorious promise. Paul writes here that every single time we bring our worries and burdens to God, he will give us peace. Not eight out of 10 times, not even nine out of 10 times, every single time. This peace is a supernatural gift from God who Paul 
refers to as the God of peace in verse 9. The God who dwells in perfect shalom, which means wholeness and well-being, and who gives that same shalom to his people. And what does this peace do? This is beautiful language, I think, here. It guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. When we pray about the things that make us worried, Jesus himself comes rushing in to our aid. He wraps our minds and our hearts safely and tightly in his love. I can't help but read out the 19th century hymn by Joseph Scriven entitled, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble everywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Our passage ends with how the Christian should think and behave. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul's language here, he's actually, he's actually borrowing from the Hellenistic, the, the Greek moralism that the, the Philippians would have kind of grown up with. So they would have been really, really familiar with this kind of rhetoric. And Paul is talking about what the Philippians should allow their minds to dwell upon. Now, I'm sure you're aware that there's been a lot of research recently that suggests that our attention spans are becoming shorter and shorter in an age of instant gratification. Truly, we live in a society where it is harder than ever to let our minds truly dwell, and they often flit and dart from one thing to the next. How relevant, then, are these words from Paul? He, ur he urges the Philippians to give their minds to nobler things, to give themselves enough time set aside to take in the things of God. For God is all the things on this list, and he gives all the things on this list. And Paul ends with one more promise, that the God of peace will be with you, if we want the peace of God, 
Not only should we go to him in prayer, but we should also allow our minds to be expanded as we contemplate and reckon in our minds all of his attributes and blessings. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just all come before you right now and we're just so aware of our need for you, Lord. I'm so aware of just how utterly terrifying navigating life is without you. So we, we praise you, Lord, that, that you reached out to us, that you took the initiative, that you made a way through the death and resurrection of Christ for us to be saved and to be brought into your family. And yeah, we praise you so much that we don't have to do this life on our own. Thank you that you are near to us, Lord. You're, you're a huge God. You're, a, you're an infinite God. You're a, a glorious God beyond all understanding, and yet you're near to us. Help us to, help us to grasp that on a daily basis, Lord, the, the nearness of you. And we know, Lord, that that will, that will drive out fear. It will drive out worry. It will, it will settle our anxious hearts. Thank you for the glorious promise in this text that when we pray, when we bring all of our worries to you, that you give us your peace. Thank you so much for that, God. So I pray that your peace would rest on us all now. Pray for anyone in this room who's particularly struggling um, in life right now and maybe is feeling really worried and anxious, God. I just pray that, that you would really draw near and that you would bring your peace. I just pray that you lead and guide the rest of our time together, God. I thank you that we get to respond now and yeah, I just pray that you, you be in the rest of this, uh, this time together in your great name. Amen.